Today's episode is in support of altruism in medicine. You may have heard our interview with the Dalai Lama's physician, Dr. Barry Curzon, a few months ago, and Altruism in Medicine is his organization. I just so passionately believe in their mission of increasing compassion and resilience among healthcare professionals and their patients. Compassion fatigue is a very real thing. And especially if you're in healthcare, you know that too well. It's compassion for patients, compassion for yourselves. And building your compassion muscle is one of the most potent tools, not only for avoiding burnout, but finding joy in what you do. You can check them out at altruismmedicine.org. And next week, May 25th through 27th, is Essentials of Emergency Medicine, the world's greatest, I say that without hesitation, medical conference. I've been hosting this show for about the past decade. And if you're looking for a recharge, like a supercharge to your medical practice, it's worth your time. When you register and you use my last name, Orman, as your coupon code, something magical happen, a little, well, it's not magic, but feels like magic. Essentialsofem.com. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Our guest today is Scott Carney. Now, that may be a name you know, may be a name you don't know, but to get us all on equal footing, Scott is an anthropologist. He is an investigative journalist. He's an author and kind of a seeker of both the fringes of human experience and the just the core of what makes us human. You know what? It makes sense when I hear that in my head, but it might sound like jibber-jabber to you, but c'est la vie. Scott has written four books to date, including The Enlightenment Trap, The Red Market, which is about the multi-billion dollar organ trade, What Doesn't Kill Us, that follows his introduction to Wim Hof and his experiences with the Wim Hof method, and we're going to get quite a bit into that in our conversation. And most recently, he wrote The Wedge that dives very deeply into understanding the space between stimulus and response. Scott's work has been featured in many different magazines, Wired, Mother Jones, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Men's Journal, National Public Radio. He has won the Payne Award for Ethics in Journalism and is a multi-finalist for the Livingston Award for International Journalism. And I find what he writes super interesting. I was really excited to get him on the show. And in this episode, we cover the benefits of cold exposure and in the larger picture, making yourself uncomfortable. Why might that actually be a good thing? The power of visualizing failure in critical situations. That's kind of contrary to a lot of the advice you hear, which is like, you know, visualize success all the way, success, success. And it's like, Scott says, sometimes you need to visualize the failure. Climbing Kilimanjaro in sub-zero conditions and only pants and no shirt kind of a side story in this podcast that we get into it much more. And I will say, you know, to that Kilimanjaro point, some of the other stuff we discuss, it can be dangerous and can kill you if done incorrectly. And I suspect with certain underlying medical conditions, you may want to take a pause before you jump into a cold lake or an ice bath. So medical disclaimer and proviso. All right, here we go. Diving deep with Scott Carney. Reading through your books, the image that keeps coming to mind is like this modern day Odysseus. 
<laughs> Odysseus was kind of a jerk, right? But I'm just saying like sort of the traveler, the traveler Odysseus, okay. you know, kind of like going from experience to experience and then, you know, gaining knowledge. The, like, so like that. that and that, that time aspect. I was tied to a mast with these sirens at me. I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> it's, it's a metaphor. It's not. <laughs> no, I like it. I mean, it's very flattering. I just, I just feel like I'm just a dude who does some cool stuff sometimes. That was sort of what he did, right? I mean, he was. I think we might get stuck on that metaphor. But <laughs> like in in your bio, self-described anthropologist. And there's definitely yes. this anthropological bent to it. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. kind of exploring what humans are doing, but it's so much more experiential. You know, you're going to these different. Yeah portals of knowledge, not the Cyclops, not the Sirens, and, you know, kind of gaining this knowledge and wisdom and experience. Right. And it's like you're finding these different puzzle pieces, you know, and you're part of the puzzle, life is part of the mm-hmm. puzzle, but I'm curious, what is the puzzle that you're trying to solve? Oh, that's a, that's like the impossible question. Um, <laughs> you know, so the the theme that that bonds every book I've ever written, right? So I've written at this point four that are published is what does it mean to be human? What the hell are we doing here in the first place? And, you know, I, I wrote a book on organ trafficking. I wrote a book on cults. I've written a book on like what doesn't kill us, which is the the one I'm best known for, which is like how to jump into ice water and be awesome. And then uh, the wedge, which is really about this, you know, how to change the way you react to different stimuli and how that changing of that reaction changes your physiology. So it's like really the linking of the body and mind. But like the fundamental question of everything I do is why, like, what does it mean to be human in the very first place? Why are we alive? Like, uh, and how does like society and the larger cultural thing that we exist in affect the individual in various ways? And it's, that's, it's almost a too big of a frame to really be useful. But uh, another way to look at it is I just do things that I'm really interested in for a while. And if I can be interested in it for like a year, that sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) To that point, how do you get that access? You know, I because th- I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm reading the book. I'm kind of going along this journey of, of course, you're hanging out with Laird Hamilton and Huberman and <laughs> Wimhoff and all these people. I'm like, is it just, yeah, send an email, write this book. Good. Let's go hang out. Um, I mean, access is a very interesting question. Like when I met Wim Hof, that was in 2011 and he was like a nobody. Like I was like the first journalist to take him seriously. And I went, I wrote him an email and I was like, you're probably a charlatan. Let's go check out your stuff. <laughs> and, and it worked. I don't think anyone can do that now with Wim Hof because now he's super famous. And mm-hmm. I was like a little, I was like a little piece of that journey to him getting to where he is now. But you know, I think there's interesting people all over the world, right? All these fascinating folks who are doing really cool stuff. And it's really about giving those people time to, you know, show how fascinating they are. And, you know, some people will say, no, like, I don't really want to hang out with you. Like, I think Ido Portal is another guy I approached. Um, he's this really interesting guy who's in Israel who does, he might live in Brazil right now. But anyway, he he, he does like, primal movement stuff. And I thought it was really cool. And he was like, no, I'm not interested in hanging out with you. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll go. Did he respond with that accent? Is that just what you're like superimposing the email? No, his email actually said that to me in in that accent, which is probably (laughs) not his accent at all. You know, I I remember with Laird Hamilton at first, it was very like PRE, you know, like you reach him and it's like, there's this big wall. I have a couple things like tools in my closet that make me sound like really awesome. 
Uh, and like, I'm actually not super awesome. I'm just a dude, but like, I can be like, well, I'm a, I'm an investigative journalist and I print for Wired magazine and you know, whatever. Um, I've won some awards and, and sometimes that, that, that will help you crack the door. But I think the more important thing than cracking the door is once you meet somebody that you have approached, um, really giving them time to be interesting. I think that's really important. Uh, and you know, with my with my work, I will go in, into these places. Oftentimes, I'm skeptical about something about the person, and I give them a chance to prove me wrong. And if they prove me wrong, they often will end up in the book. <laughs> and if they if they end up being like, "Oh, actually, I was right. This was bullshit." I usually don't write about them. Okay, interesting. Especially with the more recent books, like I don't want to just write something. Hey, this guy's bullshit. Like, what's the point of that? Like, I'd rather highlight things that are not bullshit. And then leave the stuff that I was like, yeah, this just didn't work out for me. Just not in the book because it wasn't helpful to the journey. Well, let's let's get into your books. And you had mentioned Wim Hof. And and, and I want to yeah. really focus on two of the books, The Wedge and What Doesn't Kill Us, which, you, which you've mentioned. It does seem like all of this stuff with the most recent book started off with Wim Hof. And right. you know, we've talked oh, about him right. a, a few times. And some of our listeners are familiar with Wim Hof. But most of them, actually, most of them I've spoken with have no idea who he is. So mm -hmm. how would you describe Wim Hof? And then how did you get connected with him? So Wim Hof is this crazy Dutch athlete. You could, we guess you could call him an athlete who is, was a former post homeless postman in Amsterdam who decided one day to jump into some ice water. And when he did do that, he was like, wow, this is an amazing experience. And he developed a method of jumping into ice water and breathwork protocols loosely based on yoga that gave him what looked like superhuman powers from the outside, right? Where, where you see photos of him and he's this like, you know, 50-ish year old guy, 55, 56, something like that, um, who's like basically in his shorts and an iceberg in all the photos that he posts of himself, right? Where he's jumping into ice water and he talks nonsense out of his mouth where he's like, I'm going to win the war on bacteria. I'm going to change it. I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. And, and we're blowing off the borders of science. And I'm all the books will be written about me. I and mean, he's like way out there when he talks, which is one of the reasons when I first heard about him, because he was saying, look, I can teach people to go stay in the ice water for as long as they want and to, to, to breathe away autoimmune illnesses. These things that to me seemed not possible, right? I have a, I have a sort of a scientific background. I have a, I have a master's and eight and I'm ABD in anthropology. I come from more of a scientific bent than other people in this world. And I, I heard this and I just written a book on how meditation, like intensive meditation has a dark side that can sometimes lead to insanity and death. So I heard about Wim Hof and I was like, look, you're going to send people into the, into onto glaciers and get them killed. And that's not going to be good. So I'm going to go write about you in advance. And so I went out to meet him. Exposed the charlatan. Yeah. I had this commission from Playboy magazine to go and you know, I'd just written this big article about a cult in Arizona where a guy meditated until he died. And, and, and so this is like sort of the follow-up article to that. Here's Wim Hof and he's going to do the same. But I also was open to being like, look, you know, there's also good things about meditation, obviously. And maybe Wim Hof has some cool stuff because I did know about Tibetan monks who do some somewhat similar stuff. And maybe he's got this cool program and it turns out he's got this cool program and it works and it's not superpowers coming down beam to you from the prana from heaven, right? What it is, is that he has found that by exposing himself to extreme cold stress and doing breath work, which, which creates sort of this internal state 
where you're essentially hypoxic and then holding your breath in sort of a hypoxic state. You know, these are stressful places and that being in that stressful place and then saying, look, I can handle this stress really changes your physiology and your ability to be resilient to all things in general. Uh, and at the same time I was meeting him, there were also these studies going on looking at autoimmune illnesses on the Wim Hof method. And it turns out, you know, actually the week after I met him, they sent that they actually ran the study um, and, and, and the people did the same thing I did, which is essentially rolling around in some snow, jumping into some ice water, doing some breathing techniques for a week. And they found that that the people who did his method when injected with endotoxin, which is essentially heat killed E. coli, that when they injected them with endotoxin, they were able to stave off an immune react, uh, sort of an autoimmune, the fever, the chills, the normal stuff that would happen when you would get injected with this, which sort of showed that you could turn off your immune system. Uh, selectively with the Wim Hof method. And that was a really big finding. Um, it's been around now for a little while. There's some follow-up studies going on. So I, I found that I found that I could do the same thing and that there's this huge benefit to the Wim Hof method, which is why he's like a global superstar now. He's being like, you know, he's on the Goop lab with Gwyneth Paltrow and he's hanging out with Joe Rogan and all these people. And, and some of this stuff is gr great. Like, I'm really glad that the message is spreading. And, and in some ways it's a little sensationalized because it's some of what you see like promises too much that comes out of the Wim Hof method. Um, but, you know, it's probably a net good, I'm going to say, with, with how, how it all has come out. And, and my book is I'm looking at Wim, but I'm also looking at that pr the principles behind it. Like, you know, we live in relatively static environments. You know, you have climate control. We have constant lighting. We have all these like ways that we have manipulated the environment to make us feel really comfortable. What Wim's message essentially is, is get into places that make you feel uncomfortable environmentally, not just like doing exercise that makes you feel uncomfortable, actually do something that makes you feel uncomfortable from an environmental perspective, and then learn to be okay with that. You start activating biological systems that have let us survive for, you know, all of the centuries and millennia before central heating and, uh, and electric lighting. There's an aspect to when he discovered this that kind of really, really struck me with that first cold water exposure, which was you know, I think he was, he was feeling, you know, almost suicidal and depressed and just, mm -hmm. he, he walked into the ice water and he just felt just cleansed and, 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 and happy and so, and so yep. good. So it was this state change. Essentially, when you jump into ice water, you trigger all your fight or flight responses. And then in those fight or flight responses, then you tell yourself, no, I can handle this. This stress isn't so bad. And then your fight or flight, you, 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 you don't drop as much adrenaline and cortisol and those levels call, all come into the right range in the presence of the very aggressive stimuli. So you're like, no, I can handle this. So that's really good for anxiety because in the normal world, when you're dumping adrenaline and cortisol and all these stress hormones in the normal world, but you're not actually interacting with something that should make you um, more... Um, stressed out, like it, 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 it allows you to make, to, to fix anxiety outside. Someone's listening to this and thinking, I'd like to try this. So mm -hmm. what are the specifics of the Wim Hof method that someone could say, all right, I, I just can go through these, ex I mean, there's an app that he, where he walks you through it, but you know, as far as like breathing and, and cold exposure, you know, like Wim Hof 101. So the Wim Hof method is, are, are three things, right? It's, it's deliberate cold exposure. Uh, it is a breath protocol where you essentially hyperventilate. It's, it look, you know, you could also say superventilate because it's not like uncontrolled breathing, but it's fast, rapid breathing. And then you exhale and you hold your breath. And then you do that for like a minute and then you do another round. And then next time you do it for two minutes, the next time you do it for three minutes. So you do these like, 
hold, stay there for a bit. You feel loopy, you feel dizzy, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and that's the breath method. You do that a bunch of times. Uh, and then there's a mindset uh, side of his thing, which, and the mindset is that feeling you get in those stressful states, either the hyperventilating state or the ice state. And like your brain sort of goes into sort of a pattern or a flow. And it's like being able to reaccess that flow. And you can only really understand the mind. Cause I can say words at you and you're like, Oh, those are nice words, but you can only really understand the language of that mindset by actually being in that stimulus, by actually doing this thing. And you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. And that's actually what I call the wedge. Like that's how I built this fourth book, right? Which is where I've been doing the Wim Hof method since 2011. It's changed my life. It's reversed an autoimmune illness. It's sold me a lot of books. Like it's really been a very good thing in my life, but I wanted to know what was next. Like how can I actually apply the Wim Hof method outside of just breathing and cold exposure? And like, you can actually find the benefits of the wedge in everything you do, because everything you do, you're interacting with the environment. And that environment is sending sensations to your body. And you have a choice on how you're going to respond to that sensation. This is the, you know, I, I when I first jumped into the ice water, I and I said to myself, I am not going to clench up and shiver, which is what you do in the that's like that's the method, right? I'm not going to clench up and shiver. I, I imagined I was putting a wedge in between that stimulus, that cold water, and my brain's response to it. And you can do that in anything. And I'm not, we're not, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea of separating stimulus from response. I believe some guy named the Buddha had mentioned this too. <laughs> and everyone since then, it's a thing that, that we all have naturally as humans and something that we can build. The more stimuluses, stimuli you put yourself in that are novel and that are challenging, it gives you an opportunity to say, this is something I can do. You know, of course, you don't want to take it so far that you get hurt or injured. So there's like sort of like you have to game it out a little bit. But that's really the point of being alive, because I think to some degree, who we are as people, who we are, who I am as a human is not who I am when I'm on my couch watching Netflix. Who I am as a person is when I am engaged in something that is difficult, that is challenging. And by expanding those limits by where, where you can ex exist in challenging places and yet do so comfortably is really the measure of who you are as a person. I want to loop back to a little bit sure. more in the Wim Hof method and and some stuff from sure. your some stuff from your book. So, you know, I I've got a group of friends who we've done the Wim Hof method for many years, done it together and like some ridiculous things that maybe stupid. But <laughs> and but I'm still trying to figure out why it is done in this particular way. And so you've got this this hyperventilatory sequence followed by apnea in repeating cycles, then followed by cold exposure. Not, not necessarily like that, but that's generally, you know, how, how we've been doing it. And it's like, why this? Why? I mean, there's so many ways it could be done. Like, why are these the things that are part of this method? Because they're the easiest. Okay. Oh, makes sense. <laughs> be, because, um, I mean, the wedge, like this concept of the wedge is like, what do you do after you've been doing the Wim Hof method for a while? Where else can I find this? But so there's something called TUMO. Right. This is the Tibetan thing that looks just like the Wim Hof method to like a casual observer, which is where you get a monk, you put him on a mountaintop in the Himalayas and you throw water on him and he stays there. And he stays warm with Tumo breathing and Tumo meditation. And to learn Tumo, if you're going to talk to a Tibetan monk about what the process is, there's a breathing method, but there's also a very important mental thing, which is essentially 
I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but that's fine. Um, you, you have you have these concepts of like diamonds and letters that you put in your body, and you conceive of those those these symbols in certain ways. And by you really by delving down into these symbols, you activate something in your body. So it's like sort of mind first, and then that changes your body. Now that that. It's totally doable. It's been examined by research scientists for years and years. Tumo works, and it takes about 10 years to learn because you're going, you're learning to really use your mind to control your body. Now, what the Wim Hof method is, why it's so different from that, is instead of using your mind first, he throws you into ice water. Okay. <laughs> and you're in the stimulus, and then you watch your body respond in that ice water, and you go actually from outside in instead of inside out. And this is why you can master the Wim Hof method in like three days. Whereas the, the, the Tibetan also very good method. And also, you know, honestly, Tumo is not about to, to give Tumo credit. Tumo is not about looking awesome on a mountaintop as a monk, right? Tumo is about a spiritual practice and like becoming a better person in various ways. So, so it's, but the flashiness of the Tumo is the, is the water and the ice on the mountain. And the Wim Hof method shows you how to do that almost instantly because it throws you into that stimulus. And then you're now learning the language of your neurology because we have all these words that we use to talk about things. Like I write books and stuff and words are really cool, but it is not the language that your body uses to communicate internally. The, the body communicates on things you can't sense and things you can sense. And those sensations are not words. It's like cold. It is, it is what is heat, it's water, it's sadness, it's lust. It's, it's these other things which are, are sublingual. And there is a whole grammar and neurology that you can start to get to by deliberately giving yourself sensations. And then your body learns to adapt to that sensation. Like I'm not in the cold being like, oh, this is cold sensation. I would like to control myself in the cold. <laughs> no, it's like, bah, it's like what it is like, mm, I'm doing it. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a word. And so we're really teaching a, like, a, a, like a syntax or grammar to the body using these external stimuli. And I think the reason why Wim started with this is one, he was depressed and he jumped into the water and it interrupted his depression cycle. And it's fast and it's good and it freaking works. So that's why we do that first. And But I think you can do it through a million other ways. I think there's lots of other ways to access the same stuff. With your own experience with cold exposure, you've, met, you've mentioned several things. We were talking about anxiety. What, what do you personally find to be the biggest benefit? Physiological? Psychological? Both. It's both because the body and mind are connected. We can't, you know, it, it, it's, it's not like the body's over here and the mind's over there. No, the body and the mind talk to each other all the time. They're actually the minds in the body in some way. Right. And so when, when I, I've been joining this sort of like ice club here in Denver recently, where I found a friend who has a lake and we go every weekend, my wife, me, and like a bunch of other people. And I'm doing really long ice immersions. Like last week I was in the ice for 26 minutes, uh, which is a pretty long time. And I feel like it's a, it's a great challenge to be there. And what I love is that sense of, of anticipation at first. This is going to be hard. Like I'm looking at the ice water and I know I've done this a million <laughs> times and I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh shit. 
really? I'm going to do this again. And then, and then, and then you get in there and, you know, I, I sort of walk in, I'm very calm. I don't lose, I don't hyperventilate now when I, when I go into ice, I did the first, the first time I jumped in, I cried right? But uh, with whim, but now I just sort of walk in and I get in there and I'm like, first thing that goes in my mind is like, okay, okay. I can control myself. And then I sit there and then about a minute in and I, I think to myself, well, I've probably done enough. Yeah, I've calmed myself down. I've done enough. And that's like the second step. That's like, this is use your mind being like, you can get out now, man. And then I say to myself, no, but what if I just wanted to see how far I could go? And it's interesting. It's it's so valuable to see my body go through these changes in the ice. And it's this conversation between the words in my head and then what my body is actually telling me. And then I get out and I feel warm. I feel amazing because I go from a very cold environment to a very the ambient temperature is warmer, right? There's sun on me. And I'm like, wow, I, I, I feel like great. And that then this really good feeling can last for four or five days where I'm like, I'm just in a better mood. I just feel like I've done something hard. My body feels like it's done something hard and then it remembers it, you know, and I want to do it again. And it feels, it's like almost like an addictive feeling to be put under these stresses and then, and then come out. Before you go into that lake, are you doing preparatory breathing? Are you going through some Wim Hof cycles or is it just, I'm stripping down, going in and Bob's your uncle? The Wim Hof breathing method is not to be, is not concurrent with the ice. Those are actually just two separate things that you can do hours, you know, days apart. And it's fine. What they're really doing is putting your body in a stressful state, the hyperventilating state of sort of faux anxiety. And then the state in the cold, which is like this intense fight or flight. And you're, you're trying to train the mindset. So, I mean, there's this very common misconception that you must do the breathing before you get in the water. And that's just bullshit. That is not what the Wim Hof method actually is. In fact, the people who really mix it, there's a whole group of people who are like, okay, I'm going to do the breathing. And you can, you learn, you can hold your breath for a really long period of time. And Wim Hof is also known for being the guy who swam a really long way under the ice. He has some <laughs> his, his cornea were freezing and he couldn't see. It. So he won this sort of like huge, like Guinness record, which has since been broken, but him like swimming under ice, people get this idea in their mind that somehow the method, the breathing method is connected to the ice water immersion method. And it is not. In fact, that is very dangerous. And I think like six or seven people have died doing that because you actually induce shallow water blackout where you've blown off all your CO2. You don't know where your limit is for passing out. And then, you know, we usually, when we're just breathing normally, we have like the warning comes at a certain point, you know, you're going to pass out, you need your, your air. But when you've, you've blown off all that CO2, you, the, the, the chemical signals don't enter your bloodstream um, fast enough and people pass out. And if you pass out under a six inch thing of ice, you're dead. So it's very important to realize that these things are actually separate. And what you're trying to do is to uh, learn that thing, right? That wordless mindset that happens when you're in a stressful situation and you can control it. In the cold, I found in like an ice bath, like, okay, a minute in, uh, I'm good. And they kind of start to start to shiver and it's, it's cold and the limbic system is you know, really firing because you're going to die. <laughs> and, and that little bit of lichen, your prefrontal cortex, that's been stuck onto your lizard brain recently in, uh, in evolution saying, you know, well, maybe not such uh, maybe, maybe you can do it, but I'm being overpowered by the lizard brain. I found that, you know, like, okay, I'm going to put in this wedge and do it, but 
man, I'm still, I'm still freaking cold. And like, okay, if I sing a song or I tell a story or a silly story mm-hmm. to somebody there, like I can kind of distract myself from that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I can't last that long in there. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm curious, what is the next step from that? Like, okay, I can kind of gut, I can gut through a lot, but man, yeah. at a certain point it is just freaking cold. Yeah. So the issue is that you're not trying, you're not relaxing. So you're, you're doing the method wrong. You're using grit to yeah. do it. I'm in this thing and I can do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm a fucking soldier, right? That's <laughs> like, you can't, that, that doesn't work because all you're doing is fighting the environment. What you instead need to do is you need to let the environment in. The cold is just the cold. It's just a sensation. And uh, I generally would say, um, hands get the coldest for me. And so I just put those directly on my body. I usually put my like hands right here. I put them under the water because I think it looks lame to have your hands <laughs> out. But you put it, put it in contact with your flesh and your hands will be fine. And then you just say, I can do it. And then you just zone out. You do not say this is a challenge. This is the hardest thing I'll ever do. Because all of those words of combat, which we have in yeah. our mind, are counterproductive for this because it's not actually going to kill you. There's no way a minute ice bath is going to kill you. I mean, you know, there's probably is someone out there who is like on the verge of a stroke, has bad heart problems, <laughs> only weighs 40 pounds. Yeah, that person might die. But if you're not that person, you're, you're going to be fine. And you're not actually losing heat at a crazy rate. You sit there and you can just like, I can do it. And, and you don't make it a big deal. That's like the most important thing. You don't psych yourself out for it. The more you look at an ice bath and say, this is going to be the worst thing ever, the more you have made the ice bath the worst thing ever. And, you know, this is where the meditation is. Um, and, you know, when on Kilimanjaro, I climbed up Kilimanjaro. And the, the interesting thing about doing exercise in cold environments, and Kili got down to negative 30 as I went up. Um, and, you're, and you Celsius. were pant, just pants, no shirt. Pants, no shirt. Yeah, at that point. And I, I, at, at one point... I think when it hit negative 30, I actually did put on a sweater, but you know, mostly I was shirtless on the way up this mountain and a sweater is not really all that great either. <laughs> like it's pretty <laughs> porous. Um, you know, what I'm thinking as I'm going up there, one, you're generating some heat because you're going uphill. And so you have like metabolism doing the metabolism dance. Uh, but there's also this thing when you take off your shirt and you're in a cold environment, um, you're actually tend to be warmer than if you're wearing a shirt. I'm not talking about the huge puffy. I'm just talking about the little layer of thinness that might go over you because I think there's something, and I think this could be a great medical study is you actually, I think that the, the actual surface area exposed to the environment, square inches of skin actually triggers a biological response of resilience. And I think it's like the number of nerves saying, Hey, we're in the cold actually makes your body step up more. So I'm actually looking at my skin and then I'm like, it's like I'm wearing a wetsuit. And if I put on a shirt, I actually get way colder because I think less skin is saying, let's step up to the, to the, the, the plate here. So you're talking about Kilimanjaro and that's kind of mm-hmm. how, what doesn't kill us, your book, what doesn't kill us culminates in this hike up there mm-hmm. with a group of people and, and, and Wim Hof. And it's just, I mean, almost like a forced march, you know, you're doing it in a day and a half, whereas most people do it in days and days and days. And, mm-hmm. you know, it goes up to 19,000 feet. You're not using any oxygen and, I mean, this is definitely a very much of an inside baseball question, but as you're going up there, you describe almost being impervious to the cold. And you're saying, you know, I mean, it got really cold and you're pushing through the hypoxia. Breathing a lot by, by doing over breathing the whole way up. What was the breathing that you were doing? So it was basically the Wim Hof method without the breath retention for 28 hours. <sighs> 
for 28 hours. And at sea level, maybe we did a little less because you get really dizzy mm -hmm. if you do this. But as you go higher up, you know, there's less available oxygen. So if you're actually breathing more, you're just sort of compensating for that. And we found that that is a you know, you could just take a pulse oximeter, keep it on your hand, and you notice if you weren't doing the breathing, your, your, your O2 is going down into the 60s, and then you do the breathing, you're like, oh, I got up to the 90s. Great. So the breathing works. It, you can counter the problems of altitude sickness by over-breathing the whole time. Fall asleep, you might be in trouble, like there's like some issues, but you're just basically adapting your, your conscious breathing to the environment that you're inhabiting. So it works really well. What did you guys do when it was, you know, time, time to have food or time to take a break or rest? Well, it does take a little, I mean, it doesn't drop down to 60 in the first minute, right? You have some time, you know, in the walking, I was always doing the breathing, mm -hmm. right? And in the eating, you know, not, and there was even some times where we'd just be chatting with somebody not doing the breathing. I mean, that's fine, but it's, it's, you know, you start to pay attention to your symptoms, right? Is the world getting darker? Okay. It's getting darker. That better start breathing more. Do I have a headache? Okay. Better start breathing a lot. Like, you know, your body is going to give you signals to be like, I'm shutting down over here. Let's let's not shut down. And then you can just add the fuel to the fire. I don't know at what altitude this no longer works, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if I if you'd launch me into space, could I overbreathe? <laughs> no, I'm gonna die. <laughs> for, for sure. But up to, up to Gilman's point on Kilimanjaro, which is where I made, I didn't make the true summit. I was like 100, 200 feet below it. We turned around for a number of reasons that you can, you know, there was a mutiny in the group. You can read it all about it in the book. Not everybody made it up there. <laughs> right. I mean, people die well before this, this place. Um, but, you know, I made it up to, to Gilman's point and the overbreathing, the oxygen was never the issue. The cold, you know, at the end of the day, after I came back down, I certainly had after drop after mm -hmm. being like basically shirtless all the way up there. And then I put a coat on on my way down and I, I had like a nice green puffy. Uh, and then that night I was very cold because you do pay a consequence for exposing yourself to the elements uh, that happens. You know, as, as I understand that you still, you know, well, clearly you still practice the Wim Hof method. We're just talking right. about jumping in that cold. Like, do you put sauna into your routine as well? Absolutely. I love it. Like, and you know, so you can do, I can do the Wim Hof method and I can jump into a lake and then come out of it. But it's really nice to know if I'm going to do like a long exposure, like if I'm doing like 20, 30 minutes in the lake, I like knowing that I can heat up and not have to like deal with like extreme afterdrop because it's really energy intensive to heat yourself up after being really cold. And like a hot tub or a sauna, I think the sauna is better than the hot tub, but we had a hot tub at the place where I'm going right now. So that's what we got. It's giving you these contrasts, which are which are really hitting your body in really cool ways. Like, you know, you can't vasodilate by thinking, let's vasodilate. No, you have to vasodilate by going, getting warmer, right? You can't vasoconstrict by just thinking, let's constrict. No, you have to go into the water and do it. So by going from hot to cold, we're getting those contrasts and your body has to adapt to these new environments. And the bigger the shift, the more, you know, response that your body is going to have. Could there be danger to this? Maybe, I don't know. You, I may, Maybe I'm going to be dead next week. Who knows? Uh, so far, so good. I do think there probably is a cold shock thing for some people who do have severe heart problems that this could potentially be a problem. But for you know, a healthy, I'm a healthy 42-year-old guy, it's been fine. I think for most people, it's fine. I think that everything is freaking dangerous in this world. So let's just put it in its proper box and go do it. So yeah, I have a sauna at my house. I'm, I'm getting a like something called a Morozco Forge, which is like a like an ice bath that's always on. 
Uh, I'm getting that this weekend and I'm super excited about it. Cause I like, that's always the pain in the butt with the Wim Hof method. I want to go do cold exposure. I know I can do it. Like I've got the physical chops, but it's a pain in the ass to buy 90 pounds of ice if you want to go have an ice bath. So finding the solution to cold water is like the trickiest part of the Wim Hof method. I want to get more into the, into the wedge. And you you talked about that, you know, when you're in the cold and you visualize a wedge between that stimulus, that mm-hmm. cold stimulus and what your response is, you know, you're going to react, yes. your limbic system reacts. Right. And between that reaction, that response, you put your wedge, but reading your book, it almost seems like there's two aspects to the wedge or two wedges. And one, as we were talking about, is the difficult event, is the trying mm-hmm. event. And the other is the moment when you flip the switch or activate something within yourself, not only to survive, but really to thrive mm-hmm. in that difficult sure. moment. And sure. You know, am, am I am I getting that right? Are there's like the events, the external things that are kind of like big wedges in your life, but also the wedge moment that you create? Yeah, it's the choice. Yeah, and and no one word is really gonna describe the whole thing. Like the word is the symbol in which we're gonna try to like describe the the process. And the process is really a wordle, that's a word. Is that really, that's not a word. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a real word. It's that um, thing. Like it's it's not a the, the the word the wedge is not a sufficient enough concept to describe what you're actually doing. There is the stimulus, that thing, the outside, and in that is also the anticipation of the stimulus. You're looking at the ice bath. You're saying this is going to be the worst thing in the world. That's part of the whole wedge thing because you have a there's a reason why you have an anticipation to that, right? You have prior associations with cold water or whatever else goes into that. So you have an idea of what that's going to be like. And then you jump in the water and then there's the actual stimulus. So we have the remote stimulus and we have the actual stimulus. And in that moment, you get to decide how important those previous assumptions about the ice water are. And you can make it worse or you can make it better. And, you know, you can either fire the limbic system or not fire the limbic system. Like there's not a lot of other options there, right? So then you're in the ice water and, you're, and, and then you redefine what it means. This is good. This is not bad. This is making me better. This is not making me better. Those are the words, but the words don't matter. Remember, it's mm, is the thing that matters. And that's where the wedge is really beautiful because that underlying tone that I'm giving you, it applies to everything. You know, you're at the DMV and then the, the person did something bad with your license and, and you have the choice. Are you going to react or you're not going to react? Is it is it dealing with the very real specter of death in front of you? How are you going to deal with it? Where is your mind going to be? And you always have the choice between limbic and non-limbic um, responses to that. And sometimes the limbic response is the right one, right? Sometimes <laughs> you got to run from the lion, right? And so, so it's not like we're, we're, we're trying to like, be outside of our bodies, but we're giving ourselves the tools in which to uh, respond to these these environments. And so the way I, the other thing that I talk about in the wedge, the book is, as I really sort of delve into this with sort of a thought problem. And let's, since we've been using ice water, I'll use this thought problem with you. And let's say you are a new human that has never experienced anything before, right? You're just a, like a baby. This this thing doesn't exist because everything has prior experiences. But let's say this did exist and you're the baby who's never done anything and you're about to go jump in the ice water and you look at that ice water, you have no pre-understandings of it. In fact, you've never felt cold before in your life. Okay, this thing doesn't exist, but this is what we're saying happens. We dump that kid in the water and the first thing that happens is all of the peripheral nerves activate and this shoots up 
peripheral nervous system into your, your, into your spinal column, it rockets up your spine and goes to the very bottom of your brain, the limbic system, right? And this is the first, the lizardist, bottomist part. And there might be some, there are some instinctual responses, but let's just pretend those aren't really there too much. It gets there. And I like to think of the limbic system as something like a library. And there's this librarian there and we have all this data coming in. It's just sensation. It doesn't mean anything right now because you have no prior experiences. The, the limbic system, there's a librarian there and they're all the shelves of what sensations are, are empty in this library. And she says, oh, cool. I got something here. And it is a loud signal, right? Because there's going to be a volume control on that. We got a really loud signal and I don't know what it is. And she, she, so she wants to categorize this for future experiences. So what she does, she kicks up to the paralimbic system, which is right next door. It's, a, it's like three or four structures a little while away. And we'll, we'll call this the book binder. She takes this signal, just the stimulus, it goes to the book binder. The book binder says, I don't know what this means. It's cold. So I'm going to say that this stimulus of cold means your current emotional state right now. And you know, I did mention that you had some instinctual firing, some of these sort of reticent things that happen. And it, essentially the current emotional state is panic and all linked to all those limbic horrible things. So it links panic, most horrible experience ever is cold, kicks that book down to the librarian, and then you go on with your ice bath experience. Now here's the really interesting thing. The next time you go into ice water, and that signal rockets up. She takes that book binder off and says, huh, cold, I have this book. So she doesn't kick it up to the paralympic system the second time. And she kicks it down. And then you experience that unmitigated horror and terror of your previous experience. And this is the way the brain wires on like everything. And, and we are always living in our emotional past is the thing that comes out of this. You know, we, we scale, let's scale up this metaphor to everything you've ever experienced, uh, it almost all comes in through your sensory system. Words, sensations, sounds, vibrations, all of that stuff first has to come through the same process in the very bottom of your brain, where there's this limbic librarian attaching the emotion plus sensation equals the bits and bytes of the computer system, which is your brain. And that is the base understanding of everything. So what we're doing with the wedge is we're saying, okay, we have this correlated symbol of ice water and unmitigated horror and pain, but we can also add new books to that library because it's not just one sensation. Cold happens once. It's a continual thing in the cold water and you're changing your sensations and we can actually add more books to that library. You're never going to get rid of the first sensation, the unmitigated terror and horror of the ice bath. That's always going to be there because you can't kick off books out of this library. We can't cancel culture our library, but we can <laughs> add more and more books to the library. So like, okay, it can be terrible. We know this, but it can also be awesome. It can also make us feel really good. So if we add more and more books to that library, we have more neural grammar in which to exist in the world. And we find that we can do that with all sorts of things. I'm going to jump in here for a moment because as I was editing this, I had to go back and listen to what Scott just said a few times to really internalize it. Let me, let me replay that for you. It can be terrible. We know this, but it can also be awesome. It can also make us feel really good. So if we add more and more books at library, we have more neural grammar in which to exist in the world. And we find that we can do that with all sorts of things. The practice of the wedge of exploring the space between stimulus and response 
and making the choice of how you want to respond gives you more neural grammar. I had never heard that phrase before, neural grammar, but it makes so much sense. It's essentially the story that you're telling yourself about what is happening to you. Neural grammar. We can do that with heat. We can do that with, um, you know, psychedelics offer novel sensations, right? And novel opportunities to wire both good and bad outcomes to those sensations. We find that we can do it with relationships. We find that we can do it with education. We can find that we can do it with anxiety or manic mania, you know, and, and, and these are real tools that we can use. And those levers can be our responses to environmental stimulus. Do you think that there's kind of one universal wedge technique that applies to all situations or is it more individualized like there's a dewey decimal system for this library and yeah. mm -hmm. and um, you know it's 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 the knowledge that that mm -hmm. this is possible and you know i know what x feels like and i know what y feels like or it's like look i can apply this mindset to being pissed off at the dmv and being super cold in this ice water or, you know, being in a stressful situation. I'm going to go out on a philosophical limb here and say, everyone feels raw sensation the same way. So the raw data coming in cold to me is the same incoming data as a say as cold to you. This, and this is actually a philosophical question. Do we experience a shared reality? My line in the sand is yes, we experience shared reality. And from that assumption, I think that we can start to develop. I think cold, everyone sort of has the same reactions to cold. But I think as stimuli gets more complex, like your reaction to DMV, I think that we start to diverge because our own backgrounds, our own limbic libraries are all really different. People can mis misunderstand this. You said I was Odysseus going through the, my challenges, right? Or you could have said Hercules, right? I had these 10 labors I had to do. Kind of a more noble character. And this <laughs> just popped into my head. Had I really thought about it and how it would play out here? Her Can we just, Who's let's that? just erase yeah, it. Hercules. Yeah, let's go Hercules. Come right? on, all right, Her all right Her so, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. Come on, there we go. So, so let's say, like, like my book is not the, the, the 10 super awesome stresses and things you can do to become super awesome, just like Scott. Like that is not at all the, my intention of writing this book. The intention is these are the 10 things that I did that spoke to me in that moment that I had cool lessons that come out uh, of, and that maybe you can learn something from. Because I think that really, honestly, everyone's wedge is going to be different. Like it could be, I think you should try ice water because I think it's a very basic stimulus. A very, it's like one of those like fundamental parts that you can sort of working on. But how that those like basic notes add up to the symphony of your mind, um, we're going to start to diverge quite a bit. And things that I hate include running, <laughs> include exercise classes, CrossFit workouts. I hate that shit. It does not mean that that stuff is bad. It does not mean that you could not get huge benefits out of it. And you should try to find the wedge in your CrossFit workout if that is the thing that you do. But we need to realize both, you know, two things. One, that we're all individuals. And two, we need to realize that we're all connected. And it's, it's hard to sort of have that sort of divided mind to be like, look, there's universal things in everything we do. And there's some base notes that might 
correlate with a lot of people, but everyone is totally different. And if you do not want to go down to Peru and do ayahuasca with some random shaman that you, you know, there's no reason for you to do that. I did it. Who cares? How do you do it for CrossFit and running are unpleasant? It sounds like there are experiences that you might seek out. So how do you apply your wedge to those situations? I, I mean, I think like anyone, I decide that there's things I like that are things I don't like. I've tried all of them, right? I have done them and I'm like, could I get awesome at CrossFit? I don't see a reason why I couldn't get awesome at CrossFit. I don't think I would be like the top CrossFitter, but I can like go to the gym a lot. Let's invoke some Marie Kondo here. Does it bring me joy? No, CrossFit doesn't bring me joy. I hate people fucking yelling at me. I hate comparing myself to other bros. Like, it's just not my thing. <laughs> other people get... get um driven by that. And, and so th there's, you know, we're, we're given this one package of life. We have a certain, like, I have like 80 years or hundred years or whatever I have. And the thing about life is you have to make choices. What are you going to do? What are you going to do now? And you, you can't go backward. It's like a zipper, right? Every choice you make sort of like notches one up until you're dead on your bed. So we make choices about the things that we want to do. And I think that we need to, to do two things. One, we need to follow the things we like. What other metric are we going to have? This speaks to me. This doesn't. Sometimes there can be pain before it gets to the thing that speaks to you. But it doesn't mean that some bro can't say, no, this is the way. And you're like, force it. And then it really never pans out for you. There's a conversation that is happening. And it only comes from you. So for me, I love bike riding. I like long bike rides. I like going on like 30, 40 mile bike rides. And some people will tell me, well, if you're not doing high intensity intervals on those bike rides, you're not getting your workout, bro. And I'm like, fuck you. I don't care. I like my bike rides <laughs> and I can find my wedge in that bike ride. And I do do, I do, do things that, that stretch me in some ways. Like I'm doing 30, 26 minute ice baths last week, right? I'm contemplating maybe I could do a world record because I think I can. So why not maybe try a world record? I don't know if I will, but I might. And, <laughs> and, and, and these things bring me joy. Why they bring me joy is probably because my limbic library has enough books that sort of like have focused me into that thing. And I don't necessarily want to build up my CrossFit limbic library because I don't have time to do that. Many of our listeners are physicians and specifically emergency physicians. And mm. I'm curious as to you're kind of on their on somebody's shoulder right here in this mm -hmm. and you can see into their brain and you've got the whole you got the whole thing mapped out. And is this like the devil and the angel? Am I on both shoulders or just one shoulder? You're Hercules. Your, okay, your, nice. pocket, your pocket Hercules. Well, <laughs> I, that was actually a real guy, but the figurative pocket Hercules. So, okay, great, great, awesome. And say like, and so you're going to advise them on how to wedge in in mm -hmm. this scenario. They've got a really sick patient. They're resuscitating mm -hmm. somebody, and mm -hmm. the person needs to be intubated. So they need to put a tube into the airway, which is physically a very small thing, but it can be so challenging. There's entire courses. There's there's specialists just on this one movement. Sure. Now the patient is dying. They need this and they will die if you don't get this. Their anatomy is extremely challenging mm -hmm. and you're having difficulty with the procedure. You've got some failed attempts. Things are going downhill. You know, there are ways to get around this. There are techniques that if you have like a clear mind, you can, you can go through an algorithm and you can salvage a situation, but your heart's yep. racing, you're sweating, you know, patient's life is in your hands. And you know, if you like preparatory, if something's scary is mm -hmm. coming in or you're getting ready for it. You get a, we have breathing cycles. We have box breathing and triangle breathing yeah. that emergency clinicians are super familiar with. But right here in this moment, yep. shit's going down. You think like, yep. let me tell you how to wedge right here. Visualize failure. 
It's the same question that, that Laird Hamilton asked me. You know, I asked Laird Hamilton on a wave, right? Yeah. He's on the 100 foot wave. He's looking down the wave and he's, he's on a surfboard. He's being towed in by a jet ski and he's about to drop on this 100 foot wave. And he's like, I can ride the wave. I cannot ride the wave. And he gets on the wave. And the first thing he visualizes is what it means to fail. And not what it means to succeed. We know the patient's going to live in the success thing. But he says, no, what happens in failure? And the first thing that happens, I mean, I don't, I'm not a very good surfer. And I'm certainly not a big wave surfer. But like your foot goes on the wrong side of the board. Like a certain current goes under the thing. And when that current moves your board in one way, you know, what are you going to do? Because it's not instantaneous death. I mean, it's fast, but it's not instantaneous death. And there's multiple failures along the way. There's multiple things that can and will go wrong um, before the ultimate thing of death. We accept that an emergency physician is dealing with death. You're not necessarily just life givers, right? The life is the, the, the best outcome, but I'm sure most emergency physicians have dealt with situations where the patient has died. Like there's no doubt in my mind, maybe the new ones have it, but like my father was a doctor too. He's had lots of patients die under him. He's had lots of patients survive. And I think you need to have to some degree a professional detachment, but not like nihilistic detachment. You just have to say, look, this bad thing could happen. This bad thing could happen. This bad thing could happen. This bad good thing. And that could lead to this ultimate bad thing. But at every moment, there is some element of a choice. And every moment is an element of wedge. And we just have to accept, like this is, I don't know, this is probably going to get me a HIPAA violation or something, but we have to accept that people are going to die. Like, like, and if you can't accept failure, then what are really are we doing, right? Like, why are you even attempting to save someone if you can't accept the fact that you might fail? Uh, and I think this is like the deepest, I mean, you're giving me a very hard example because literally <laughs> someone's life is on the mind. I'm yeah. usually in the ice bath and I'm like, oh, I can just get out and go warm up, man. <laughs> but, but the thing is that the stakes are there and all of every human life, I mean, I deal with death a lot. Like I've seen people die violently. I, I, this is a, a thing that happens in my life a lot. And I, and, and the thing is that Americans are very scared of death, right? We, we, we valorize success. We do not accept failure in general. We look down on people who are failures. But the inevitability is that every human on this planet is going to die, right? You are going to die. I'm going to die. And I'm going to promise you, in addition to that, that death is probably going to suck. The ultimate failure, of every human life ends in, in failure, and it's going to be probably a messy failure, you know? There are maybe some examples of people of happy deaths, but most part from what I've seen, it sucks. So if we acknowledge that the ultimate failure is sucking, um, then what do we do with the rest of our lives? We live as best as we can because we know that there's this inevitable thing coming and maybe there's a heaven, maybe there's a hell, but I don't know anything about that. And so I'm not living my life for my death. I'm living my life for the right now and the acknowledgement that maybe death is not great. And I think that Americans like to have this idea, like, oh, I'm going to get on my deathbed. I'm going to look at my daughter and my, my, my son. They're all going to be like, oh, you're great. And I'm going to think to myself, oh, I had a great life. So then it's all going to be okay. That's weird, man. Live for right now. Don't live for that shitty moment where you're being intubated by a doctor who's like, well, maybe this guy's going to die. And, and so this is my thing. Is like, I think that um, you know, definitely don't kill that patient. Do your best. Realize that you could fail. And then realize that that failure breaks down into not just one error, but multiple errors before you get there. And that's, that's my feeling. Now you can now call me a horrible person. <laughs> There's this micro moment and I'm, and I'm curious. I mean, and it's, it is the same thing. You're doing something or, or your approach isn't the right approach and you need to change things. And, you know, Laird Hamilton is kind of thinking about what would happen if his foot went this way or that way. Like what, what happens in that moment when you think, okay, I'm visualizing failure. Like what does that get you? You just do it. You visualize the failure and then you just do it. 
once you know that there is the potential of failure, then you can actually, and you, you have it visualized and you know you're going down that route, then you try not to do that thing, right? You, and, and you, but you don't necessarily give it too much weight. It's the interesting thing. You don't overthink the wave because you can't outthink the forces of nature. You can only do your best in that moment. And, you, and, and that, that, that visualizing failure, sort of visualizing every bad thing that might go wrong on the way, but you visualize it, you're sort of dispassionate about it. Like it's not happening yet. I'm on the surfboard. My feet are in the right place. I'm on the wave. Yeah. A current could come, but if a current comes, maybe I'm going to kick my foot in a different direction. Like, you know, and, and, and you have to sort of be in the present moment and be aware that should intubation problem C happen, I should, I have to do action D to resolve that, but I'm only on action A right now. I'm just trying to jam that thing down this guy's throat right now. And, and you have to be in the present and look at the actual challenges you're, you're, you're dealing with and know that when you get to the third and fourth and fifth challenge, you have roots to get there. I mean, we have, I have this discussion with my wife. She's more anxious than me. And we, we're, in a, we're both entrepreneurs. We're in, we're run a business together. And there's all sorts of problems that can come up in business. And something will happen, some contract falls through. And she's saying, well, the contract's going to fall through and now I'm going to be not going to make enough money this month. And then, then because of that, this other thing's going to fall through. And eventually she ends up selling hairpins on the side of the road where she is destitute and can't do anything. So she's already gone from, you, there were like 40 things are going to happen before the hairpins. And really the contract fell through and you're just going to negotiate another contract. You have to be in the, look at the present challenges and hairpins are there. They're never going to go away. But the other things can happen as well. And, you know, I mean, admittedly, emergency surgeons, doctors, I am not in your field. Like, I am not generally making life and death decisions for other people all the time. But I don't think it's any different because I think the stakes are still the same. It's pure stoicism. It's like mm -hmm. the, the, the story, when the story takes over, that's what if, what if, what if, what if. Mm -hmm. And the considering failure, embracing failure, not that's like, oh, I'm going to fail. And, you know, I'm going to let this person right. die and not apply my skills. That's so what, what's next? So what, mm -hmm. what's next? It decatastrophizes the situation when you're able to embrace that and dispassionately pull that into your thought process rather than, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to the, I love that visual of the librarian. It's like, you've got this library of the story. Your perfectionism book is, uh, you know, getting all screwed up. And then what's going to happen here? And how are you going to be mm -hmm. lacerated by the hospital administration? And then you're going to get sued. Mm -hmm. And this is horrible. And you're horrible. Mm -hmm. And it's just, none of that has happened. What's next? What's next? What's next? Right. Yeah, I mean, think about the, the the stories of these pilots whose planes are crashing and they're at their controls until the very last second because you can tell that from the black box. Well, they did die, but a lot of pilots didn't die. And they just were like, you know, you've got to pull on the flap or whatever. <laughs> whatever important part of the plane is, you got to pull back, you got to do this. And they talk until the end and they remain dispassionate because that's the only way to survive. Because if they said at the very beginning, oh, we hit a bump, let's go die. That's not good. <laughs> Like, that's why nihilism is not necessarily the great the greatest solution to like, in the moment problems. That was a really extreme situation, but you know, taking it to anxiety to anxiety or or mental irritation. Let's say, and this is so common now, very unhealthy. You know, you get really pissed off. A politician is so mm -hmm. duplicitous and yeah. reprehensible on all levels. On mm -hmm. something really important to you, maybe the thing important to you is common human decency, but we won't get into that. And you know, the Bombay doors 
of your mm-hmm. being are open and you're ready to unleash a barrage of F-bombs on social media, where is the wedge? I've totally done that, though. Social media is fascinating. From a physiological perspective, it's fascinating. And so Huberman just released this study recently talking about threats and proximity. So uh, I'm going to just butcher it a little bit, but here I'll get, you'll get the gist. The, the lion is, you're on the savanna, the primordial savanna. The lion is a mile away and your eye looks at the lion and detects it by moving the lens in the eye to a certain distance, which at that distance, it autonomically triggers your parasympathetic nervous system, your rest and digest system. Threat isn't close to me. Lion gets closer and closer. Your lens moves. And as the lens moves, and only based on the lens, it triggers your your fight or flight responses. More and more and more until the lion's on top of you and the lens is screaming, this is a problem. Now, there's other things going on too with the lion chasing you. And I'm just talking about just the lens. The lens actually has a, and the focal point actually translates to autonomic arousal because the threat gets closer and closer. Now, in the modern world, a politician who I do not like tweets something I don't like, or maybe they, they're on a different social network. I don't know. And where are you looking at that tweet three inches from your face or six inches from your face at the maximum distance, sorry, the minimum distance for like automatic, autonomic arousal? So, you know, because we live in contained spaces, not like where we evolved, we don't have the, 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 para, the, the parasympathetic reinforcement of having horizon all the time. We actually have these constrained spaces. And that, that makes social media so much more impactful because we, in, we automatically respond to things like tweets in fight or flight mode at a minor level. So when that, when that politician says something dumb, it, it triggers this this anger response. The solution is to delete your fucking social media account because there's no way around this problem, right? I mean, I mean, maybe look at your social media on a projector from across the room because you're not going to get, you're not going to outsmart uh, millions of years of biology because this is what is an evolutionary mismatch. And so delete fucking Facebook, get less on Twitter. And can you insert a wedge? Yeah, absolutely. You can insert a wedge, but you're never going to overpower all biology on this. And social media is toxic for a million fucking reasons. And this is just one more reason to delete those accounts. That's so funny. I, I um, go on Twitter like once a week, just I have a, I, I use buffer to um, kind mm-hmm. of create tweets so that I, so it schedules them and I, I don't go on. Then I'll go on once a week, just kind of see what people are saying. And I had my nose, you can see it is an impressive proboscis. It's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it that is. is years of Ashkenazi uh, mm. heritage working it. And so it just was getting killed by this N95 the other day. And I was like, man, oh, no. it was just this crappy N95. Yeah. And, I, and I was thinking a lot of my followers on Twitter use N95s and I know that they've got a good A game for treating it. I was uh-huh. like, so I put out this thing. I said, hey, what is your A game uh-huh. for taking care of your nose with the N95? And it's like all these great things, all these great things. And then this one guy types type as the guy because I could I could see his picture. His response: "Don't be such a pussy." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man!" And I thought, <laughs> "Okay, at first, must have club, must have yeah. club. <laughs> yeah, kill that man, <laughs> kill that." But then there was this. Um, we spoke with um, with Frederick Imbo a little while ago. He had this awesome TED talk on how to not take things personally, and uh, mm-hmm. be- that's a beautiful talk and. And I actually, I had spoken with him like 20 minutes before I saw this tweet. I was like, okay, his comment is clearly about him and much less about me because he didn't know me. Yeah. So, 
But there's obviously like a kernel of truth, like, oh, I kind of am being like, you know, like, am I being that way? Am I being that way? It was the most ridiculous, stupid thing. But mm -hmm. I like rationally, my prefrontal cortex can understand what's going on here. But the limbic brain yeah. still, mm -hmm. still was firing saying like, oh, man, if have club, mash with club. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here the thing is, social media is fucking toxic, and and you know, people also <laughs> can't don't. It's very common to misread things and respond without understanding even what the person was saying, and then they respond offended, and yeah. then you respond offended. I did this recently <laughs> with Brian McKenzie. We were going back and forth on a tweet because he he I, I assumed he got something wrong on evolution, and he was like, "No, I didn't get it wrong. We fucking were fighting." And then I was like, look, read back, and I was like, "Oh, well, you know, maybe he said some good things." And, <laughs> and you know, we're, we're we're fucking idiots. We're all idiots. I'm an idiot. You're an idiot. Everyone's an idiot on social media, and it gives you the immediate idiot response uh, because you you like it's just designed not to have contemplative issues. So. I mean, I'm on it because I have a little bit of fun with it sometimes, and sometimes I enjoy the battle, but you got to realize it's bullshit. It is just our limbic systems playing out on the internet, and it's being designed by neurologists who go for interaction, and you're not going to outsmart it. Yeah, I like this idea of buffer. That sounds good. Like, like put things in between you and it, but we were not designed for this, and I, you know, I, I'm off Facebook. Uh, I had a, a somewhat of a following on Facebook. I'm done. I'm on Instagram because I had like, you know, I like pictures of cute animals and stuff. And we live in a horrible world. Take more ice baths. I don't know. I, I wish I had a solution. <laughs> oh, okay. So much more to discuss. I, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us today. That Actually, you know, I don't know if I want to end it on, I don't know if I want to end it on the world's horrible place. Take more ice baths. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Why? That's so perfect. Tie yourself to a mast, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> hang, hang on, Odysseus. Let me just pull in one more quick, quick story here, so we, we can we can end some positive. So you, so there's a character in the wedge, Castro Giovanni, the kettlebell thrower, Michael Castro Giovanni, and you, and he throws. I was watching videos of this, and you know, you, you're throwing legit kettlebells back and forth. And you think right. like, this is crazy. This is crazy. Right. And you go in that situation, I'm going to be seriously injured. You describe going from fear to joy yeah. to almost like a spiritual practice of throwing kettlebells. I mean, what happens in that evolution? It, his thing is called kettlebell partner passing. So yeah. it's like two people stand apart from each other with a great Instagram filter on them. And they, they, <laughs> uh, they swing a kettle. One of them swings a kettlebell and it flips and the other person catches it. Yeah. And the first time you do this, you know, I prefer doing this barefoot because I think it makes the situation better. The first time you do this, the stakes are real, yeah. right? Kettlebell hits my barefoot. It's going to fucking break my foot. And I'm going to be hot. I'm going to be limp for the rest of my life. Okay. Stakes. We got them. They're real. The movement is easy. It's not, it's not hard to jump out of the way of a kettlebell. It's not hard to keep your feet wide and like trust that the person's going to throw it roughly in the middle of your feet. And so if you miss it, it's still going to land fine. But there is this, the stake is still real. And what happens because of that stake is so that he throws it and you are locked on that very real threat with every tenor of your body, right? Every, every piece of attention you can muster is looking at that because the threat is real. And he doesn't want to hurt you. You don't want to be hurt and you don't want to hurt him. And what happens is that this, what looks like sort of a bro-y, whatever, I'm throwing kettlebells, dude, uh, thing <laughs> turns into an exercise about empathy. 
it becomes an exercise about, I don't want to hurt you. You don't want to hurt me. And we're doing this thing that's actually a little dangerous, but we're actually, you're throwing the kettlebell with love and you're catching the love from this other guy. You're catching his ball with his love and you're going back and forth and it's a spiritual practice. It's a dance and it's really fun because you realize that what the external world sees and what you are experiencing are totally different. And you also, you know, there's this ritual you have to do first to be sure the person is paying attention because the moment you start taking this, your expertise for granted is the moment you fuck up. It's just like the ice water. The ice water forces you to pay attention to the stimulus. The, the kettlebell throwing and the understanding that the kettlebell will hurt you forces you to pay attention to that stimulus. And then once you're able to turn that danger into a dance. What is the thing that you do beforehand to connect? You look at each other's eyes. You, you swing it three times before you let go. One, you're looking at each other's eyes. And so you know where their distance is, you know where their attention is. This is all really important because sometimes you see people like look away, you're like you're not paying attention. We're here and we're throwing a fucking kettlebell. Look fully at me. Present, fully present. Right. <laughs> fully present. Look at me. So you look at the eyes, second swing, you turn your attention from the eyes to so the person who's throwing the bell to the actual fucking thing that's going to hurt your land on your leg, the kettlebell. So you look at the kettlebell, the, the second one, now you're focused and you're tethered to that. And then you let go, it flips, it lands in the other person's hand perfectly. And, and you do the things you need to do not to get hurt. So if they throw it off, you get out of the way. It's slow, but it's fast enough. And it, it, it really puts you into this moment of bonding. And it's, it's great to see couples do it, actually. A man and a wife or a man and a man or whoever, you know, so a romantic relationship. You have them throw it and all of their trust issues, because everyone's relationship has trust issues, plays out in the physical throwing of that bell. Because whatever things you got going on your even a great relationship my wife and I have a really good relationship but there's still all those trust issues come up and you start working them out physically and through sensations and I love my wife she loves me neither of us want to hurt each other and it gets put into that bell and it's like a little bit of alchemy it's amazing beautiful so a uh, couple closing questions if um, people want to learn more about Scott Carney how do they find you uh, so I'm on not Facebook really anymore, uh, but I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, I have a website called scottcarney.com. Yeah, I mean, I would say get my books. Re I don't care if you get them from the library or Amazon or wherever. Just get the books, read them, and hope they're useful to you in your life. I think I have a mailing list. I think that if you can get like a sample chapter, if you join my mailing list. All of the places that people normally have things to connect with, that's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you working on now? I have a book coming out in a year and a half about a, a storm that hit what is now Bangladesh in 1970, uh, killed 500,000 people, started a genocide, a war, a revolution, and almost brought the USA and USSR to nuclear conflict. And it's uh, so very different subject, uh, but it's going to be awesome. I'm telling it through the story, the eyes of the survivors and the presidents and the all like Nixon's involved in this. It's crazy. Yeah, it's going to be like sort of this action adventure that's really an allegory for climate change. If you had a bumper sticker that you could put on every car in the world that people would see every day or bike or back of a t-shirt or whatever, just the, the message that's going to be emblazoned on people's eyes as they go through life, what would that be? I hate bumper stickers. On my car, I have the Wild Thing sticker, which is for my wife's podcast called Wild Thing. And everyone should listen to it. It's about her search for Bigfoot. It's great. It's a very science-based look at Bigfoot. Is your wife a squatcher? She is related to the a guy named Grover Krantz, who was yeah. the most famous academic expert on Bigfoot yeah. in the world at Washington State University, not so far from where you are. Yeah, he spent his whole life 
as a tenured professor looking for Bigfoot, he was sort of a big deal in this. So she found out she was related to him. And then she spent a year trying to understand why someone like him would be so interested in Bigfoot. And, you know, she goes a squatching and doing so. I wouldn't call her a squatcher, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story because it's about an absurd thing, Bigfoot, right. But taking yeah. it seriously and using it to talk about actual, real, interesting scientific stuff. And also, you know, we don't know that Bigfoot's not out there. It's hard to prove a negative. The evidence is getting harder for him to still be a current walking around species, but Hey, could have he been around 50 years ago and gone extinct? Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm about 99% he's not around, but, <laughs> but, but uh, I'll give him a 1% for sure. Unexpected. Unexpected there. Ending the podcast with talk about the Sasquatch. Who would have thought? I suspect actually that may be the only time that that happens on Stimulus, which makes it even more delightful. Who would have thought we would have been talking about squatching? All right, that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there you can also sign up for our occasional and irregular non-spammy newsletter. You can see some of our videos. You have a grand old time. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.